This is Science Moab, a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm your host, Peggy Hodgkins, and today we are talking about the mapping of soils, how it's done, why it's done, and how the information is used. I feel really lucky to have the opportunity to study something for its own sake and not personally be studying it for some sort of management purpose. I just get to go out, dig holes, and try and figure out why a certain soil exists in a certain place. It's like a history book. It's really special. A lot of it is kind of solitary time where you're out in the middle of nowhere by yourself doing this work. And I feel like I've developed a stronger connection to the landscape than I ever thought was possible. And it's that thing that I was missing that I didn't know I was missing in my life. It sparked my curiosity about the natural world. Christy Mingus is a soil scientist who maps soils for the Natural Resources Conservation Service, or NRCS. She is currently mapping soils in the San Rafael Swell in Emory County, Utah. The NRCS, whose origin dates back to the Dust Bowl of the 1930s, has the goal to map all soils in the U.S. before 2026. NRCS stands for Natural Resources Conservation Service. Originally, it was the Soil Conservation Service. So the reason the whole agency was formed was basically because of the Dust Bowl. The federal government started realizing how important soil is. It impacts everything, right? People's livelihoods, the economy, everything. At that time, they formed the Soil Conservation Service and made this goal to have all of the soils in the United States mapped. So it's this really big natural resources inventory. Right now we're finishing up mapping areas like BLM and forest service land that haven't been mapped. So most of the stuff that's unmapped currently is really remote and less intensely managed than places like agricultural land, stuff that they prioritized in the mapping. What is the goal? What do they hope to gain by having a map of all the soils in the U.S.? Basically, it's a way for people to understand how to best use the land. It's one of those things where this map is made available to the public. So we're doing the inventory work. And once the map is out there, we don't control how people use it. So it can be used for any purpose. You can use the soil map for things such as deciding where the best place to build a building is or deciding which area has prime farmland, what to grow on certain areas. If you're curious what the native vegetation should be on a certain soil type, you can get insight into that. If you want to use the map on things like management for rangeland, you can figure out what vegetation the land should be producing if it's in a healthy state. So you could use the map to figure out ways to manage the land that will hopefully not harm it. And so you're currently mapping soils right here in Utah in Emory County mainly. Mapping the soil involves reading the landscape, seeing how the soils change. So what aspects of the soil are you looking at to see if it's changing? We look at a lot of different aspects of the soil. So kind of the day-to-day 
routine of someone who is going out and mapping soils the way that I do is to go out into the field with knowledge of the local geology, the local vegetation, the local climate, elevation, and have a background knowledge of all of those things when we get on site. Then we'll get to a specific landform. So example, if we're going to a hill, you would imagine that the soil could be different at the top of the hill, the shoulder, the back slope, the foot slope, and then down at the bottom where things are more flat. All of those different landform positions have different soil forming factors that impact how soil will develop in that specific area. So the things that we consider when we're describing soil pits are soil color. Color can give you an indicator to different things such as geology, mineralogy, organic matter is really important. Oftentimes your top soil will be darker and then soils will get lighter as you get down lower. Maybe there's more salt accumulation down lower and that can give it a more white appearance. So color is one thing that we observe. Texture is something that we observe. So that is percentage of sand, silt and clay. And those are the different particle sizes that make up soil. So clay is the smallest particles, silt is the midsize and sand. So the percentage of those different size particles will give you the texture. And texture is important for things such as erosion potential, water infiltration. We also describe soil structure. You know, in some areas where things are maybe really compact, you'll get this platy structure where it's thin plates that are more impenetrable to water versus something granular where we have more little round balls of structure forming. So there's a bunch of different types of names that we have for all of these different geometric structural units in soil. We measure rock fragment percentage, which can be important for management. We measure salt content. Salt increases the pH of soil. So a lot of the soil pH in the areas that I've been working tends to be higher than in a lot of places in the States. When you first walk out on a landscape, I assume you can't walk every inch of the landscape and check every inch of the soil. <laughs> but what is it that you're looking for on a large scale to decide where you're going to go and physically test the soil? And then how do you physically or logistically test the soil? The way that we go about mapping is searching for repeatable patterns across the landscape. It does take a little bit of art in there. I think anytime you're doing map making, it also, you've got your science behind it, but then the way that you put it together is kind of this artistic representation of your generalizations of what you've found with your data. We'll find patterns that repeat. And I think some of the most important things that we'll look at are elevation because that will often drive precipitation. So pre precipitation is really important when you're mapping places such as the San Rafael Swell because it's a desert. So things that are in a certain elevation range with a certain vegetation, a certain geology, and a certain landform position will often have similar soils to a broad extent across a landscape. So you're able to lump those together. And when we're physically out there, we dig soil pits 
and we dig soil pits that are five feet or until we hit bedrock. And then we dissect that soil pit. Soil has layers. So we'll figure out, we call the layers horizons. So we'll figure out the horizonation of the soil. And we do that by making observations of wherever there's a change in those things that we talked about earlier, like texture, structure, et cetera, and record all of the differences that we see and then take that data. And whenever we're done with field season, we'll compile everything and figure out a range of characteristics for that certain, you know, geology, landform position, veg type, et cetera. You have these data points and I guess, depending on how rapidly things are changing, you might have, they might be far apart or closer together, depending on the, the landscape. But when you're making a final product, a map, um, are you using something like satellite data or what kind of data to sort of fill in the gaps of your mapping? That's a great question. Yeah, we use as much data as already existing as possible. So I use ArcPro for mapping and I'll bring in a bunch of different layers of data. So I've got aerial imagery, a geology map, and in the swell, it's been a fun place to use the geology map because you'll find that the soils change really closely with the geology there. So that's been a really useful tool for me in mapping the specific place. And in other places, sometimes other things will drive soils more. And so we'll also use climate data, digital elevation models. In addition to ele just elevation, you can figure out slope, aspect, and those things, which are really important in driving soil formation as well. So really we are using as much existing data as we already can, because if it's out there, we just know it'll make the soil map better if we use the stuff that people have already worked on collecting. Yeah, that makes sense. And you're talking about geology. I mean, I suppose both geology and vegetation on the surface have a lot to do with the soils. Say you see a certain uh, vegetation growing. Can you get an idea of what's going on in the soil? Or do you have to go ahead and dig a pit to, to know for sure? That's a great question. And sometimes you can predict pretty well what you'll find based on the vegetation type. It's kind of a fun game to play when you're out in the field, just walking around mapping. If you have black sagebrush, you can expect that it'll be on a shallow, rocky soil. And that holds up a lot of the time. And then if it doesn't, for some reason, you know, you find something that's weird, then your mind just starts running with all of these questions like, okay, why does this vegetation exist in this place, even though it's kind of an oddball. So there are a lot of different pairs that you have where you know a certain vegetation will have a certain type of soil. Like working up in the mountains this summer, I'm also working in the Uintas. And when you're working under aspen trees, you can almost always expect to find really thick, dark layers, which we call a mollic epipedon. And it's just because those deciduous leaves decomposing over time have built up that organic matter content, which you don't find in other places. So there's definitely things that the vegetation can clue you in to about the soils. And there's some vegetation that's more picky than others. So with the picky vegetation, it's nice because then you can kind of predict what soil will be there. So you have these, you know, spatial map of where the soil is. Do you map any like recent erosion features in the soil? Currently, 
we don't necessarily go back and update all of our soil maps continually. But right now we're at an interesting time where we're switching from those vector maps where there's polygons that physically have these map unit concepts that we've come up with to this digital soil map where you can click on a pixel and it will predict the soil type based on a model. So we're hoping to do this more dynamic soil survey in the future of soil survey where we're able to predict changes based on management and you know changes with erosion and have a more up-to-date map with new technology. And it's something that we're working on right now. It's a, it's a bit of a work in progress, but it's coming. Cool. So all this info you're recording in the field is archived in the USDA site called the Web Soil Survey. Mm -hmm. Can you describe that a little bit and basically what data goes into this site? Yep. Web Soil Survey is where our maps are published. It's available to the public. So if you're listening and want to check it out or check out the soil where you're living or if you have some favorite place you want to see what the soil's like at, I recommend checking it out. Basically, the data that goes into it is what we mappers collect in our field seasons. So it's refreshed once a year with whatever new data is being published or sometimes things are updated. Web soil survey is pretty fun to play around with once you get a hang of the interface. There are a lot of different reports that you can run with soil health. You can see erosion potential of soils. You can see infiltration. There's, there's a lot of different reports that you can run on there, and it's, it's worth playing around with. Great. Are there certain entities that rely on this data? In other words, who is looking at this data the most? Great question. I think that answer depends really on the location. Where I'm working right now in BLM and Forest Service lands, it's mainly federal agencies that are using that data because they're constantly being asked, can I do this project on this land? And they have to make decisions based on the resources there. So having a soils map can clue them into things like, uh, you know, maybe that's not the best place to put a road. I don't think so. Or this area is really sensitive and that area is not. So if, if you're going to do this project on public lands, we recommend you don't use that area, but you use somewhere else. So that's not something that we do as NRCS, but the other federal agencies will use our maps for those purposes. It's also used a lot for research purposes. People who are studying soils or studying agriculture, or you know, if people are studying the impacts of wildfires, they'll typically check the soil map in that area to see what the soil properties are or what the, the native vegetation should be in that area. So people can see what the natural condition should be in that site, and it can give people insight into management there. Although in agricultural lands, I think the maps are used a lot differently. They're used by people who are wanting to grow things. And if they know properties of the soil, such as the texture, it can help them figure out their irrigation systems. So oftentimes engineers will use the data. And that's true for ag land, but it's also true for building sites. People will often check web soil survey just to get a feel for what is out there before they'll start doing their own surveys. So it's a, it's a really good starting point just to give people a feel of what to expect out there. We're normally mapping at a scale that 
is pretty general. Right now in the swell, I'm mapping it one inch to a mile. So no matter what management decisions they're doing, they'll probably want to go out there and do their own intense soil survey. But a lot of times people who are making the decisions might not have that great of a background knowledge in soils. So this is a really great place to give them that starting point or that, you know, here's what you should expect when you go out there. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty neat site. Can you explain what is meant by soil health and what would be a healthy soil versus an unhealthy soil? That is also something that's really location dependent because a healthy soil out in the desert will be pretty different than a healthy soil that gets a lot of precipitation and is growing yeah, a lot of things. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. So in agricultural lands, we'll use that term soil health to kind of refer to soils that are being replenished and not degraded. Things such as no-till farming, where you're not really disturbing the soil structure, can improve soil health because then the microbes have a chance to really flourish. The soil structure, once it's in place, it's better for things like infiltration. Water can stay in there and it won't just run off. So having ground cover can be really important from a soil health perspective when you're talking about agricultural lands. When you're talking about the desert, it's related to management areas where there's been a lot of usage, whether that's from people walking off trails in sensitive areas or a certain area has been hit really hard with grazing and it just has gotten really compact over time. Those type of things can impact soil health and how water will enter and impact the soil. And Yeah, that makes sense that it's well, Christy, thank you so much for talking with Science Moab today and updating us on this whole soil project. Yeah, thanks for having me. To learn more or listen to other Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Science Moab Media is by Sophia Fisher, newsletter by Rhonda Cook, our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding, and the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.